Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. This episode, we focus on the two aspects of round two of the contest. In the first section, I talk with Meeple Lady and Travis Hill about writing rules. And in the second section, I talk to Cassie L. and Paul Grogan about making how-to-play videos. Hopefully, this is useful for you if you're in round two of the contest or just working on rules or how-to-play videos. A lot of great information. So, on to the show. I'm here with Meeple Lady and Travis Hill, and we are going to talk about writing rules, which might come in handy if you are in round two of the contest, or if you just happen to be making a game and you need to write rules, which is, I would say, the most important part of a game. You can go without bits and without a board and without cards, but if you don't have rules, you don't have a game. Meeple Lady and Travis, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. So, let's start with Meeple Lady. Would you like to just give us a little background, how you got into the hobby, and more specifically, how you got into rules editing and copy editing and stuff? Okay. Um, hi. I'm sorry I have a little cold, so I sound probably a little weird. Um, uh, I do board game writing, and I'm on a podcast for the 5 by. I got into board games uh, probably around 2010, so not as long as a lot of other people that I seem to encounter. Um, I got a present, Ticket to Ride and Catan, and I'm like, whoa, what are these games? And I basically fell into a giant rabbit hole that is Board Game Geek and have like never left. Um, for the rulebook editing, uh, I'm actually, uh, my professional experience is copy editing and now I'm a digital editor. Um, so I wanted to combine my two loves, grammar um, and board games. And that's how I got into uh, rulebook editing and I've been doing it freelance for about a year and a half. I just got into the hobby really in 2014, so you've been here longer than me. Oh, awesome. <laughs> uh, and Travis, how about yourself? Hi, I'm Travis Hill. I wear a lot of hats, I feel. I'm a co-host on Low Player Account, uh, podcast about one and two player board games um i do rulebook editing obviously and i design quirky little rpg games and small box stuff um i got into the hobby i don't know a decade or so ago and i just keep playing games and that's it um back in 2014 a good friend of mine paul grogan who apparently is on the other side of this podcast um he from gaming rules he asked me hey i need some help with uh, this this game by this guy called Vital Lacerda, and the game was the Gallerist, and he was like, "Do you want some? Do, do you want to help me?" And I went, "Sure." And so for the last four years, I've been helping out with that, um, and then also uh, just kind of doing it freelance on my own for a uh, better part of a year and a half now, maybe two years. Actually, true story. Um, when I was looking into getting into the rulebook editing, I had actually messaged Travis, like mm -hmm. asking him, how did he get into the industry? And he gave me some really good advice and sort of just taken off from there. I messaged him and Dustin, who is also a prolific, um, who does uh, rulebook editing full time and um, just sort of asked how they both got into the industry. <laughs> well, hopefully we go over some of that here. We're, yeah. really, we're a really small community. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's something to bring up. I mean, I've only been in this industry for a couple of years, like I said. Rulebook editing has seemed to really pick up popularity lately. Mm -hmm. I know, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously the concept has been around forever because you can't actually have writing without editing in some form, even if you ignore it. Um, but I think lately, like maybe the past two years, it's really picked up popularity, especially online. And a lot of people are saying, like, there is no excuse to not have an editor for your rulebook. Like, you can't put out bad rulebooks in 
in this day and age where access to people to help you is so easy with mm-hmm. how connected everyone is, how do you, I assume that you agree with that, but uh, Mubal Lady, how do you feel about, like, do you definitely need an editor? And does it have to be a separate person than the designer slash publisher? Uh, definitely. I think people who are learning how to play a game for the first time, if they can't figure out how to play the game properly or the way it's designed, um, that can make or break an experience. Uh, Like, you know, people want to learn how to play the game. I mean, it needs to be clear. And I think, yeah, like I totally agree. There's so many resources out there. There's a lot of people in BGG who do rulebook editing and um, it shouldn't be hard to figure out how to play a game. It's a pretty important part. (laughs) I've seen some... um... I've seen some some Kickstarters that will have like rules edit professional rules editing as like a stretch goal. Oh my god! <laughs> and it's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Come on, you know. <laughs> like, and, and so, and I say that because I think what what actually happens is that people they they just either they don't think about it, but if they do think about it, they're like, ooh, I don't know how much that's going to cost. You know what? Maybe we just crowdsource this instead. <laughs> and then you have people with Kickstarters. Uh, and I, I'm just going to pick on Kickstarter, but I mean, this this happens throughout the industry in a lot of other ways, in mm-hmm. other n- different avenues. But you'll have a lot of um, you have a lot of publishers on Kickstarter who will just toss their rules out and say, "Go for it, good luck, see what happens," you know, and let us know what's wrong. And 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 sometimes that's great because you're actually able to get a lot of what Meeple Lady was talking about with kind of getting that that accessibility. You're trying to figure out what's going on in the game, and if you can't learn it through the rules, then you can't learn it. Um, and so you get you get a lot of that feedback, which is awesome. But then, how a rulebook editor works, uh, hopefully a good rulebook editor. What's great about it is that they're able to take all of that information and they're able to um, they're able to stabilize it throughout the entirety of the document. Right? They're mm-hmm. able to take that take all of that information, all that feedback, and they go, okay, I'm going to streamline this. I'm going to, and they're going to make parallel systems. They're going to use the exact same thematic terms. They're going to use the exact same structure all the way throughout the entire document instead of throwing everything back at the publisher and say, this is what it should all look like. Good luck. Um, Instead, you have a consistent voice from the beginning to the end, kind of like how you would write a book, you know, or a technical manual is that you have the exact same narrative structure. And that's super important. And a lot of times, to kind of go back on that point that you were talking about, Chris, is that a lot of times you can't can't do that with – you can't. A publisher can't necessarily do that, or the designer can't do that as well. And some some can, and some can do it fairly well, but for the most part, they're too close to the game at times uh, for them to be able to do it from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's the same way with most most endeavors at all. It's hard it's hard to critique your own work. So just exactly. having any other set of eyes, although professional eyes are generally better at it, mm-hmm. uh, is helpful. And uh, like you're saying, with crowdsourcing it, to a degree, it's helpful. Like, a lot of mm-hmm. eyes will notice problems, but you're not going to get that cohesive feel to the document that is yeah. so important to make it easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And then we're all board gamers, so we know what we're looking for. We know how things need to be presented in a certain way so we can mm-hmm. understand the flow of a game, why things matter, why things are important. Um, and I think that really helps that, you know, we all do that. Yeah. Part of part of it, we were actually talking about this before we started officially recording. Mm-hmm. Is the idea of being a rules editor, and that's I I like to think the more everybody that I talk to who does any rulebook editing, we we actually talk about it often enough that that's the title that we use, but we all do far more than just rulebook editing. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, we will rewrite rules. 
Now, I've been asked by some people to actually write the rules for them. Like, they explain the game and I write it out. And I, I just tell them no, because that, that takes too much time. <laughs> you have to present me with something. I'm not going to just talk to you on the phone for three hours and write down what you say. Yeah, the first uh, draft is always the worst. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, oh, I just can't imagine the, the time. Well, mm-hmm. sorry. Um, but, but oftentimes, we're just called rules editors. And we do it because people know what that is. But, but I don't just edit the rules. I look at the examples. I look at... Um, I look at the layout. I, I work on make sure that the layout makes sense with the examples, and that's the best way to do it. So I still work with graphics. Um, I work with accessibility. I want to make sure that people who don't know anything about this type of a game can can come out of the rules understanding how the game is played. Um, and so there's a lot of small bits across the board that's not just going in and doing straight-up copy editing, even though mm-hmm. that's what I started doing originally, and that's what I still mostly do. It's far more comprehensive than just that. Uh, definitely. Um, yeah, like the rulebook editing is just like, you know, the catch-all term, but, you know, there's, for what I do, um, I charge differently for proofreading. Proofreading, it's pretty much like a finished product, but you still want another set of eyes looking over things, you know, catching inconsistencies, making sure things make sense. But then I also charge differently for um, copy editing, and that's like the more in-depth, like what Travis was talking about. Like, does this section belong here? Should we explain how battles work later down the line? You know, is this interrupting the flow of like what an action turn is or is a turn part of a round and just sort of a little bit more comprehensive and you know um do the visuals make sense does this section need an example because you know sometimes you know people start writing paragraphs and it's like you don't necessarily need a paragraph like I like (laughs) concise words I like break up those sentences give me bullet points give me an example that's uh, the best way to get that information across to Mm -hmm. board gamers and then also the other things I like to work on like um, is a huge thing like um, gender neutral pronouns like it's 2019 we should be writing for you know all kinds for all types of people and different audiences yep Mm -hmm. yep so, uh, Travis, you had mentioned graphics, and I was wondering, how much do each of you work with graphic design in your editing? Do you do you have a separate graphic designer on the project, and you do you work with them? Is it totally separate? Do you get to the document after they've already done a pass? Um, how do you work with that generally? Uh, each one depends on the project. Um, my... For me, I I like being in the I like being in the project at about sixty to seventy percent. Um, sixty to seventy percent means that it is before the document has gone to final layout. Um, and yeah, so it's before the document's gone to final layout. That way, I, so it, it comes to me like a Google Doc or something. And so what I'll do is I'll sit there and I'll work on it, and then I'll send it back, and then somebody will. Um, a graphic designer will put it into final layout, then I'll get it back and then finish up my rounds and then go on from there. And obviously there's a ridiculous amount of back and forth with that. It's not just I spend 30 minutes on it and send it on. Um, but I personally do not do graphic design. Um, I can use Photoshop in InDesign, but that is not my wheelhouse. That is not how I feel good <laughs> uh, with things. I let other people who have an eye for that stuff do that instead. But but I, I tend to work with PDFs a whole lot. But I mean, in term, but and I'll make I'll make suggestions. Um, some projects I will be working with the graphic designer, and they'll say, "Hey, where do you want this laid out? Here, 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 here." Um, and and I'll give them my suggestions, and then they'll do it. So. It, so, but yeah, it, it varies my project. For me, I do like to get in when the rules have been written and worked on and revised a little bit, and then I'm able to go in before graphic design actually happens. 
I'd have to say the same thing as Travis. It just depends on the project. Some some um, projects I get in the raw state in the Google document, and I like using working with that because it's a lot easier to edit words in the Google Doc versus when you get the PDF. Um, oh. Do you ever get like a PDF of a Google Doc or something? <laughs> No. Oh man, I've done that a few times, and and I'm just I immediately go. Can you send me this as a Google Doc? Please? Yeah, yeah. Or I, it's either that, or I immediately go just well, okay, fine, copy and paste. You know, uh-huh. I I open make my own Google Doc. I have, oh, I have not. I would I would start laughing as well at that. But I actually, you know, as, as much uh, more difficult it is working with a PDF, you know, because you have to send sticky notes back and forth or just like make notes. Um, I like seeing that visual representation of what the rule book might potentially look like um just to see like you know like this is what the game looks like or um so it just depends on the project i could go either way yeah i made the mistake with um i think it was my second game design ever and i had the game design it maybe worked i wasn't really sure i didn't test it that much and then went right to like full-on graphic design rule book got this whole thing laid Mm -hmm. out and like oh well that rule doesn't work well that's a pain to change. I think I'll just leave it. Oh, no. So, uh, that game is not great. still needs to be worked on, and that's four years old. Five years mm-hmm. old? Wow. It's been a while. But, but yeah, you definitely don't want to get into the locking down graphics too early because it's, yeah. it makes you hesitant to want to change the rules because it's so much more work. So the more, exactly. the easier it is to change, the easier you are to change it. That doesn't make sense. Anyway. <laughs> well, and it's hard because whenever you... Whenever you're working on a game, you're actually you're actually a pro. I mean, a, a good publisher is a project manager. Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing. You know, they're hiring four or five different people to work on the game, kind of simultaneously. You have somebody that's working on graphic design, um, and then you have somebody that's working on the rulebook. And once the rulebook's somewhat done, they send it over to the graphic designer. And after they've made you know their their icons and board stuff and cards and all that other stuff, then they go, okay, cool. And I'm gonna throw this into final layout and then send it back so you're kind of doing you're, you're a project manager doing three or four things all at the same time mm-hmm. yeah so why don't we transition into specific advice for people in the contest or people just writing rules let's start with how do you like to lay out rules maybe lady you want to go first Ooh. um uh let's see how do i it's a big question i know <laughs> <laughs> i'm like mm, uh, that is a big question <laughs> um I kind of like, you know, the first few pages of your game, you know, give an overview of your game, um, what the goal is, how to win objectives, you know, just sort of a brief thing, not too long, because sometimes some some raw drafts, I'll, I'll see like a whole backstory of a game. And, you know, that's a lot like people want to dive in. So it should be short and quick. And then after that, you know, if it's a turn-based game or like player-based, then you start explaining all the different things. So I kind of like the, I guess like the pyramid, you know, just like short and sweet at the top and then explain everything as you go through the world book. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of in terms of actual layout, I feel I, I feel the same way, right? Um, but then it's also hard because it kind of depends on what your project is and mm-hmm. on what, what your actual game is, you know, how people always have the questions of like, well, do I insert, do I talk about the actions, right? So, so let's, say, let's say it's a game that on your turn you get to, uh, three things happen. There's a, there's a cleanup phase that happens at the beginning of your turn, and then there is, you get to take four actions, 
and then at the end you draw two cards, whatever it is, right? Um, and so then people go, well, do I talk about the phases specifically and then I explain all the actions below? Like, let's say there are 15 actions I could choose, mm-hmm. but but there are four. So, but do I put the 15 actions right after I talk about the actions in the phase? And so there's a lot of that stuff um, that for me is just like you, what you were talking about, Meeple Lady, is mm-hmm. that you kind of want to... You just want to branch it off as you go, right? So you want to have you want to have your general phases like A, B, and C up here, and then if phase B is actions, well, then you know on the next page, boom, mm-hmm. talk about actions, you know. Um, but once again, it's hard because it is different with every single rule book. Exactly. Um, a lot of things that that we've talked about already a little bit, um, just kind of like some some do's and don'ts, you know. Um, really, if you're concerned about a layout. Find a game that is similar to your game and copy its layout if you haven't written rules before. Um, just if, if your game is a card drafting game that's about scoring points, download the rules for Sushi Go and just copy and paste those and just use that as a, as a template. Um, and you can do that with almost anything. Um, if you have a super heavy Euro, find a super heavy Euro that is something like yours. And, and then once you're able to do that, then that makes it easy because that's where your template comes from. And then mm-hmm. you go, hey, this doesn't make sense. This does make sense. Whatever. You know, if you're creating the next dungeon crawl, please find a good dungeon crawler rulebook, first of all. And then, uh, then copy that one, <laughs> and then go on from there. And it's not plagiarism because it's a template, and yes. you're going to put all your own stuff in there anyway. So yeah, um, you're just looking for a structure, basically. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, the, copy the layout, not the rules. Exactly. And <laughs> Please the, don't do that. And the thing is too, like I think some people when when you get a game and they just sort of go into what all the different movements and different actions, you know, straight into that they sort of gets lost like wait how does a round exactly go like i need that first thing and then you can explain everything and so i think that's a good idea to follow how other well-written rule books are written and then just follow that structure (laughs) yeah i also think too if if you have a much more complex game um an index is very helpful especially you know you're reading rules and like wait what does this say on this card like what is like a movement exactly and then um then you can look in the back of the index and it'll give you like a page number and i'm only assuming i'm, I'm only suggesting this for games that are with rule books that are substantial <laughs> you know 20 pages or more <laughs> your single page doesn't need a second page as an index <laughs> correct just because you know there's a reference like okay well what yeah. exactly is a movement is it from this spot to this spot and like those are the types of things that gamers like will have a million questions about so when there's an easy way to find that information in a rule book that's really important too mm-hmm. yeah we did that for john company um <laughs> we, we got we got about 90 percent through it and we're like hey i think we need to add some type of a, a glossary or an index <laughs> in this mm-hmm. and and we did and it was great you know we couldn't label every instance of it because that would be ridiculous but mm-hmm. it was like here are the two or three major points you need to know about this if you actually perform this action that's a good idea <laughs> mm-hmm. It's on that subject of longer rules. Um, how do you feel about like a quick setup guide or maybe even a separate shorter rule sheet that's just like a more of a, a refresher for someone that already read the rather longer book, but just like the quick things like setup, like what do you start with? What's the win condition? Like turn structure. Are you a fan of any of those or depends on the game? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm cool with that. Um, I think a lot of times it just definitely it depends on how lengthy it is, you know, and then there's also going to be, I mean, it's a player aid 
basically is kind of what that turns into. Um, I always think back to like the old the old Aaliyah games, the Aaliyah big box games. I would always have the uh, like anytime you set up Castles of Burgundy, it always has you know that that second column in there that gives you all the the shorthand of how to set up the game. And it doesn't matter how many times I have played that game, I still read it in the main text because I think I'm going to mess it up somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't like it necessarily like that, but it's like a separate standalone page that's front and back, and it's just a reminder on what you get and how to do basic setup. Sure, I mean that's that's perfectly fine with me, but I think it just depends on how complex your game is and a lot of people they just don't want to they don't want to do that because the game is going to be um the game will be different at different player counts and all that other stuff you know Mm -hmm. i also like um some rule books where the game is much more complex they sort of highlight the important rules or missed points that sort of like reminders Mm -hmm. for game players um and also again that depends on how complex your game is but the I feel like for longer games, that's always really helpful. Like, don't forget this when you do this, or, you know, this is what this triggers if you do this, you know, examples like that. Yeah. Travis, you had mentioned player count, and it just reminded me the first time I played, oh, now I'm blanking on the name of the game, uh, Dead of Winter. Mm-hmm. I played it two-player with my brother, and we went through the rules, and we set it up, and we played, and then we got to the end of the book. It's like, if you're playing two players, do this. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. well, that would have changed a lot. Oh, so, no. Uh, Things like that should maybe, I mean, maybe we missed it at the front. I don't know. But that's definitely not something to put way in the back. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's hard. And it's hard. Oh, man. Stuff like that's always super hard because if you put, if you put it at the front, so, so what you could do, there are kind of two ways about it, right? You can put it at the back because it is an alternate, it's an alternate way to play the game. It's like how solo, you know, solo modes of games Mm -hmm. are always in the back, right? Um, And so you'll have, um, but but it, if it has to be clear, it has to be clear. There has to be a different color or a giant box or an asterisk or something that says, if playing with X player count, look on page 13 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have to have that there. That's one way to do it. The other way is I have seen a bunch of like big box Euro games where they will put the differences in the rules right below what the regular rule is but they'll do it in a different color or a different font Mm -hmm. or in a box and sometimes that's cool because you're actually able to go and look at what those changes are immediately and directly with where they should be Um, but then sometimes it's not because then it's not all on one page because like you learn the rules for a multiplayer like a three three to five player game and then all of a sudden you're like oh two player what are the differences and so it's I don't think one is better than the other necessarily, but you just have to be clear about it up front. So another issue that comes up with rule books is it's a single document that has to serve two purposes. One, it has to teach the game, and two, it has to be a reference for people that already know the game. Uh, have you run into any tricks for getting those to work together? I know, was it Fantasy Flight that does two separate rule books for some of their games? Yes. <laughs> which some people hate and some people love. So you're not going to please mm-hmm. everyone. But what are some thoughts on, on that? Um, I think they're useful. If you don't want to read the second book, then, you know, more information is always better, I believe. Um, when it's written in a concise way. That sounds like a total contradiction. <laughs> but, you know, player aids are important. Um, like, like I know GMT does like their rule book and then like mm-hmm. there's a whole other book of like how to play the game and those are always like 
really helpful, I believe. But also, it just depends on the game. Um, I know I feel like that seems to be like the mantra for these. Um, you, I like what Travis said, like find a game that's similar to your game and see how they write out the rules. If it's a complex war game, you know, try to follow how complex war games are written. And there's a lot of examples out there for you to help write the rule book for. I remember whenever, um, whenever Fields of Arl came out by Rosenberg a couple years back, and one of the biggest, one of the largest critiques that I heard about the rules, and it was just because it was about, it's about all, all Rosenberg games, really, is that you can, you can read through that, and you can figure out how to play the game, and you can learn it, and it's good, but it is terrible to flip through those, what, 18, 22 pages to try and figure out what this action is and how you're supposed to do that. The long and short of it is that unless you have a second book or an index, it's going to be, or a glossary, it's going to be nigh impossible for a single document to be able to do both. Um, and it's also because everybody learns in a different way. Mm -hmm. The person that reads the rules might not necessarily be the most comprehensive learner. Um, and they might be great at teaching the game, but they might be terrible at retaining all the individual, all the exceptions, all the information that happens. Um, and so being able to go back and like, oh, I need to reference this. Maybe it's up to the person that's learning the game and teaching the game to make, the, to make note of those moments. Um, I am not afraid to write in rule books. I'm not afraid to get sticky notes and put them places because, no surprise, I read a whole lot of rule books on a fairly consistent basis. And so uh, information kind of mushes together in my brain sometimes. So for me to go back and actually reference, it's really hard. Um, fantasy flight games, I love what they do. I, I'm not, I'm, I don't play a ton of fantasy flight games, but like um, I played Star Wars Outer Rim recently and we learned it from one document and then every rule thing we needed was in the second one and it all made sense. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so incredible. I want to be a part of this team, you know? Cause, but then I look at how long all that stuff is. I'm like, ooh, that's too, too many words. I don't want to do that. So. So I think it's I think it's hard. I think I think it's hard to do it well and obviously it's not going to be perfect. And so it's either do we make a um do we make an index or an appendix or or an appendix or a glossary mm -hmm. or a second rule book or do we just say hey the impetus kind of has to be on the player to try and figure out where some of this stuff is. That's hard though. Like how mm -hmm. how much do you put on the players as well? You know, are they are they experienced? Are they inexperienced? Um, yeah. And it's really hard to gauge that. But then also based on what type of game you're, you know, writing rules for too. Well, it reminds me, like we've been saying, go find another game that's similar <laughs> to yours yeah. and follow it. But beyond helping with a new person writing rules to give them an idea, also if similar games keep to a similar structure mm -hmm. and players are going to play those similar games, you're you're following into a pattern that is recognizable and it's easier if this game 10 is laid out the same way as the nine before it it's mm -hmm. going to make more sense to the person that's played a lot so they get more more of an advantage as they continue and then ultimately like having a new set of eyes which is when you bring in a rule book editor will help determine or shape how the rule book will go and um based on someone who's been working on it since the get-go since from the beginning you know just having that mm -hmm. second set of eyes will definitely help craft how to get this game out, how to get this uh, game understood and played and 
hopefully everyone has a good time learning how to play it. So we are coming up on our time limit. I just wanted to see, could either of you name a couple of rule books, whether you worked on them or someone else did, that you would point to as examples of very clearly written rules? Oh man, a lot of people are going to hate this. Root. <laughs> Root by Leader Games is a fantastic rule book. It yeah. is it is absolutely stellar. And the reason why I think people are going to hate it is because there are like 600 rules questions in the BGG forums. <laughs> and and it's because and, and it's interesting because people a lot of times people are inferring what they think the rule should be mm-hmm. and then they bring it out onto the table. And they're like, oh, well, I think it's this. And then they either they read it or they don't read it again or whatever. But a lot of times, um, but man, I've just really enjoyed, I've really enjoyed learning Root and just playing it just like straight out of the box. I mean, and for a super complicated game in terms of just like, you know, multifactioned, all that other stuff. And yeah, it's, it's great. I, I love it. Yes, I agree with that. Like um, when people have questions about how Root is played, um, all the information seems to be really easily found. And that's surprising for a rule book. Like, you don't spend time, you know, leafing through the pages. And I'm like, oh, wait, here it is. Here's the answer to the question that we had, like, five seconds ago. And that's, like, a mark of a good rule book. Like, people can find the information. Um, on the other hand, like, for me, like, I like the Vitalis Serta games. I feel like I can really understand them. There's a lot of information in them, but it's written in a way where everything is broken down, you know, in a digestible manner. There's like the overview, but then there's also like helpful hints to the side, like that sort of break out the important information in case you just need like a quick reference. And then I'm thinking of like Lisboa, where you have your own little like rule book, which like your little like um you know Mm -hmm. little menu and i know that might drive some people insane but i'm like oh i love this there's like all this information here for me that i don't have to pass around to everyone else because sometimes we're just like passing the book around like trying to look things up and that's all paul grogan (laughs) (laughs) is there anything else you would like in this episode um yeah yeah i'll go i i actually wrote down a couple of wrote down a couple of helpful hints um that I try and do that I try and talk about whenever we're whenever I talk to new designers or designers who are writing rules for the first time um <coughs> don't go under the assumption that players know what you're talking about just because you've lived in that game design world as long as you have um the question comes up occasionally not as much anymore but the question comes up occasionally of what comes first, theme or mechanics. And what's interesting about that question is that for people that go, oh, well, mechanics comes first, and now I have to make absolutely everything that I say revolve around this idea of theme. And so they'll take very simple things that should be very normal or very uh, normally named, and they make it some astronomical thing, right? So... For example, uh, Magic the Gathering, right? Magic the Gathering's discard pile is not a discard pile. It's the graveyard. And the only way that they really kind of get away with that is because um, they've been doing it for 30 years. And so it's not a big deal at this point, right? Um, But if somebody comes up to me and they go, hey, the discard pile is just going to be called the trash can. Well, unless your game is about moving that you are a, a... trash person you know going around collecting trash um i'm i don't want it to be called the trash can let's call it the discard pile 
And so what happens is that people make the assumption that because of the theme that they have in a game that players are going to make the logical assumption going from oh well this is a game about working at a restaurant so the discard pile is going to be the dumpster because the dumpster is what's out back now don't get me wrong you can have you can have cute uh, thematic names for the terms in your games, but don't just let it be that. I mean, it really has to tie in for people to remember how this stuff works. Even as somebody like me, who I read a lot of rules and teach a lot of games, even whenever I'm teaching games, I still will go, the blue cube over here gets put on the spot number three. I don't know what the track's called. I don't know what the blue cube represents. All I know is that it's a thing, you know? Um, but that's because it's a super dry euro, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> But but seriously, though, I mean, don't assume that players know what you're talking about in the game. Spell it out for them. Um, you don't have to... You have to come in with some previous assumptions, right? You have to under, you have to hope that people understand that, that when you say roll the dice, that you don't have to explain roll the dice or shuffle cards, that you don't have to explain how to shuffle cards. But whenever you're saying, you know, draw three cards, where do you draw the three cards from? Are there multiple decks? Do you draw them face down? Do they go face up in front of you? It's just understand those small nuances that for you, you get accustomed to seeing. And a lot of times whenever I get a document for the first time, that's a, those are a lot of the questions that I ask. Is I'll just put in comments, is this face up? Is this face down? Where do they draw this from? Does this get discarded here? Where does this go? Um, and and so because of that, that's taken those prior assumptions that people have and just tried to knock them down a little bit. Um, I like to look at rules. Uh, I like to look at a rules document without having played the game first. And a lot of designers don't understand that because my, my idea is that I want to approach this document as if I have never seen this game played before, as if I am the learner of this game, that I am reading it and I have to teach it to people in 45 minutes. They're coming over, I got to read this rule book and I have to teach it. And so I want to take it from that standpoint, from that idea, because if I don't, then I'm going to come in with all these previous assumptions and ideas in the back of my mind of it has to do this and it has to do this and it has to work this way and so that's really hard to go into it having played the game now after a while i'll play the game and i'll clear up a lot of those those misconceptions that i have but at first i just want to read it like a player is going to read it um and that is by breaking down those assumptions you only get one chance to look at it with fresh eyes so make Completely. it count yeah <laughs> um yeah, some advice like, you know, be consistent in your terms, you know, like, especially if you've played different games that are similar, like there's always the, is this a round? Is this a phase? Um, make sure those are clearly defined so people can understand the structure of your game. Also, when you're writing rules, like visualize what the board game looks like on table, like where are people going to see those blue little cubes? Where are people going to draw the cards? Um, make sure that's clear just based on like what the description is, what the rule book. Um, and I think, you know, try to explain what you can in the fewest amount of words. People don't want to get bogged down by all the jargon, um, all the fluff. They want to learn how to play the game. Um, don't be afraid to break up sentences. Um, use bullet points. You know, these are all structural like words, like, you know, advice. And I think that's really helpful to make your rule book digestible. Yeah, one hint I came up with for like helping be concise online they have all these word count things to like make word cloud generators and i've <laughs> yeah if you run your rules through them and you look at this like yeah the is going to come up you know a thousand times or whatever <laughs> but if you have some weird name like the dumpster and you only use it once maybe you don't need the word dumpster in your rules yes that's a good idea <laughs> yes 
find I oh gosh I do that all the time though is that I'll I'll be working on a document at that Google Doc stage and the designer goes hey I made some updates and I put it in they're like we're gonna call it this and I just do a search for it it's in here one time there are four thousand words in this rules document and it is in here one time what what's a better way that we could call it what's something else we can call this now you know no oh, but it needs to be the dumpster no it doesn't <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> also, be careful with find and replace if you're familiar with the wizard. From no, what happened? I believe it was a version of Dungeons and Dragons uh-huh. where they got rid of mages, so they changed the word uh-huh. mage to wizard. So damage yeah. became the, the wizard. wizard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Find and replace will not solve your problems. No, no, yes. it will not. No, it will not. <laughs> but but if you do find and replace and you do match case on it as well in a Google Doc, that's that's the best thing ever because that's how I figure out capitalized terms. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. But I still go through every single one. <laughs> no, it's yeah. I'm not just going to. Yeah, I don't trust yeah, that. <laughs> no, yeah, no. I, it's really more of just finding them. Very little do mm-hmm. I actually replace all of them <laughs> that way. Yes. Yeah. But it saves so much time. You got 500 pages. You don't want to read them all. Well, your rule book should not be 500 pages. <laughs> Fair enough. That reminds me. So anyone entering the contest, we appreciate that you need to be clear about your rules, but also try to be concise. Because it is a lot for people to go through. And even not in a contest, I don't want to read more pages than I have to to learn a game. Try to be concise. But be clear. That's more important. Yes. Well, I think that covers it. Thank you both for coming on. Let's end this with some contact info. And are you both accepting work? Yes. Um, I'm I'm not right now. But I but I am open for people to ask me random questions about stuff. Even yeah, better. Yeah, ask me, ask me all the questions. I just don't have the time to edit your rule book though sorry <laughs> not right now <laughs> uh some people later let's start with you contact info and then any projects you're working on you want to share or anything else um my contact info uh, my website is boardgamemeeplelady.com i'm also meeple lady on facebook twitter and instagram um and if people have rule book projects they want to contact me about um my email is meeple lady at gmail.com all very easy to remember yeah. <laughs> and travis same thing uh, you can find me everywhere at Travis D. Hill. That's D as in Daniel, my middle name. So Travis D. Hill. Um, I'm I'm finishing up just a bunch of little projects. Um, I got to do, um, I, I, I get to work with Jordan Draper all the time. So I literally just wrapped his second series of Tokyo games. Um, wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff there. Um, I just wrapped up uh, Bus from Capstone as well. So um, mm-hmm. two really big projects, which is kind of why I'm not doing anything. <laughs> so I need a little bit of a break. Um, yeah, yeah. So kind of working on that stuff. And I've been working with Keymaster, who did Parks, the board game, and do kind of like some localization stuff for like Fuhrlandspiele, some uh making sure that their rules look good in English as well. So it's kind of working on that stuff. But yeah, I am all across everywhere at Travis D. Hill. And if you want to go to a specific website, bit.ly slash Travis D. Hill is another one. So that's it. Awesome. Well, again, thank you both for coming on. And hopefully this has been helpful to our listeners. Yeah, Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Ask us questions. We are available. (laughs) Likewise. (laughs) I'm here with Cassie L. and Paul Grogan of Gaming Rules, and we're going to talk about how to make a how-to-play video. Since that is part of round two of the contest, I thought it would be very topical and helpful. Cassie and Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, So to start off, I wanted to 
just go a little into each of your process for how you do your how to play videos because you're working with other people's games and so there's dealing with publishers and getting copies and that sort of stuff and then for the meat of the show we'll go into the the process of making the video so that any listeners that are making a video for any contest especially the board game workshop contest round two if you made it in could uh get some helpful hints so cassie let's start with you so what's what's the process like um I know you do a lot of indie games because that's more of your focus. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about getting the games? Do you contact the publishers? Are they just things that you grab for fun? Or like, how do you go about to start the process? Well, the first one I made was uh, I really wanted to get experience doing it. And so I did it for Starving Artists um, from Mike Wokash, who is a friend of mine. And I enjoyed doing it. And I put out as an opportunity if anyone was looking to hire somebody to do these videos here's one i've done if you want to hire me to do one for you we'll work out a price and now i um i get contacted to do them without having to reach out to people i can't accept them as often as i would like because it's not my full-time job but um i right now i have two that i'm working on and i tend to have at least one in my queue and paul how do you go about starting the process yeah, I mean, my similar story. The first one I ever did was going back just over five years now, and I decided that I wanted to start creating instructional videos online for people to be able to learn how to play games because I love teaching people how to play games. And I did Tashkalar, one of largest battles uh, games. Cause I do a lot of work with CGE, and I thought, this is the game I'm going to choose as, a, as an experiment. Um, and it wasn't paid for, it wasn't commissioned at all. It took me three months to make. Um, <laughs> a lot. I don't. I don't even want to think how many hours it was. Uh, but it was oh, weekends, dear. evenings, mornings. Well, I was doing digital animation, so I was learning how to do digital effects as well. And it was after that time when Vlaja sat me down with the CEO of, of Czech Games Edition and went, "We can't keep allowing Paul to spend all of his time doing this stuff for us without paying him." And that was how Gaming Rules started. So it was me wanting to do this, which then ended up turning into a job. As it is now, all of the instructional videos I create are commissioned pieces of work because they take me anywhere from 40 to 60 hours to create. Well, one of them's taken 120 hours, but that's another story. Um, it is a job, so there's no way that I can just sort of, you know, knock them out for fun um, because it is part of the job that I do. Yeah, so you, you both get paid for these now, right? Yes. Yeah. Because it, it is a massive amount of work. Like, I work in video for my full-time job, and I know exactly how demanding video work can be especially if you're adding on animation and graphics and the rules explanation on top of that is an entire script writing process so let's transition into how to make a video so where do you start when you're going do you start with a script do you start just playing the game a couple times to get an idea for it or uh, let's start with paul uh i i have a fixed process which i don't always follow so let, let's explain what the fixed process is first. So the first thing I've got to do is get the game and play it with my friends. Okay, so I, I want to play it myself first, whether that means learning how to play from the rulebook or something else. Now, sometimes we get sent a prototype of a game that's not even out yet. And the rulebook might just be a sketch of, you know, it might be a very roughly written Google Doc, which is of hardly any use whatsoever. So there's a whole process of trying to learn how to play the game first and then actually playing it with my friends just so I get a feel of how it goes. Then I might play it again. The next stage, oh, and the second time we play it, I will actually teach a group of friends of mine. And then the third time will be me teaching another group of friends of mine so that I get 
more comfortable with how to teach this game and the right order in which to, to structure things. So that that would be how I start, is by playing the game myself and practicing teaching it to friends. And Cassie, do you do a similar thing? You just you, Cassie, do you deal with like pre-production games, or you're mostly they're already published, or at least already finished, not necessarily published if they're like Kickstarters or anything? Um, mine are mostly kicks pre-kit, like they haven't been on Kickstarter yet. So I I would say pre-production prototype, and my process is. I guess it really depends on the game that I receive because I do a lot of lighter games, games that play in, I, I actually say in my um, work that I can't really do things that play under an hour or play over an hour, I'm sorry. Um, I just don't have the time to devote to something like that. And I don't do online animation. Mine is all with video footage. And so it doesn't take me as long to do my work. I would say maybe... The most a video has taken me it was 15 hours. That's still a long time. <laughs> it is a long time, and a lot of it is in editing, and it's when you have a lot of components, and you have to go back and forth and show different things with different components, and there's a lot of... Each component has a lot to it, and the game may only take an hour to play, but because you're reading through a lot of a rule book, it's going to just be a lot longer. You know, there's setup and whatnot. And when you're doing video, you have continuity you need to maintain, so there's... Oh, no, I accidentally bumped the table. Let's start over. (laughs) So, um, but my process is I get the game and I'll read through the rule book first. And if the rule book looks like something that I really should play this before I start doing the rules because it's a little more complex than I expected, then I'll play the game. But sometimes I don't need to play the game because the rules are really they're pretty polished and they're almost finished. So I can read through the rules and play with the components as I'm reading through them. And I totally understand how to play the game. And so I'll type up a script and then I'll send it along, of course, to make sure it's accurate because I, you know, sometimes some things are missed. Like Paul mentioned, sometimes I'll get games with the rules are a quick Google document that someone typed up. So you want to make sure something isn't missed. But um, it really just depends on the kind of game I get, how I go about the beginning stages of setting up a script. So, Paul, do you also write scripts for yours? I would assume yeah. so, because you do not yeah, that, short that, videos. That's the next stage. Is one, Once I've played it a few times and I've practiced teaching it to my friends, the next stage is I'll write a script. And what I do is I do a very rough script first, where basically write introduction and then overview, and I'll just write a few bullet point notes in there, and then I'll turn that into an actual word-for-word for word script. And, you know, Cassie mentioned... You focus on the the lighter games that sometimes you know don't, generally don't take more than an hour. My focus tends to be on the medium to heavy Euro games that are you know two, three, four hours long. So that that script is normally hundreds of lines in a Google sheet. Um, but as I'm going through the script, I I also color code it. So I have I have three different colors. One of the colors is this is going to be me on camera. So at this point in the script, you're going to be seeing me on camera with the game in front of me. The next colour is you're not going to see me, but you're going to see components you know, on the table moving around. And then the next colour is this screen is actually going to be pure digital animation. You're not going to see any real footage in this. And I sometimes do that if I'm going to show a particular card and highlight bits on a card. I will sometimes ask the publisher for the digital image of that card. Because if you're watching it on a nice big 1080p screen, having, you know, no matter how good your camera is, having a nice crystal clear digital image on screen is always is always nicer and yeah. doesn't actually take that much longer to create once you've learned the basics of 
of, of motion graphics. So yeah, the script is the next thing that I write, but I kind of storyboard it as well. I make, I have a second column where I make notes of this is what's going to be on screen at this point, and I'm already thinking through the process um, of that. I tend to write the script in one day. It can take me a whole day usually, because as I say, this is usually a, a very meaty, heavy game with a lot of rules. And then I'll go back to it the next day, and I'll obviously rewrite bits that that I felt um, weren't good. So yeah, the script writing would be the next stage for me. So for the contest, uh, our videos are going to be limited to 15 minutes, which based on last year's How to Play videos, I think all but like three were under 15 already, because it, it, the contest does tend to skew towards lighter, quicker games. Yeah. So, But we had one that was 45 minutes, Oof. and it was... It was a lot. I mean, it was a meaty game, so it's not that it didn't need it, but it was it was very much an outlier. So in putting in the time limit, my goal is to give the judges plenty of time to view all the or some of the videos and give mm. feedback. But I feel bad about restricting any heavier games and like tying them down to a 15 minute video. So let's say you had to do not a really heavy game, but like a 90 minute game, but you're restricted to 15 minutes. What are a couple of the key things that you would definitely want to get into that video. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that I've done on my channel, because um, I, I do I do various types of videos, and this year I've actually branched out and I've been doing some of the tutorial and playthrough videos, which are a completely different thing. We can talk about that another time. But the pure instructional ones, I've done a lot of full how-to-play videos where you can watch the video from start to finish and you will then be able to go and play the game. But I've also done a few overview videos, which are exactly in the category that you're suggesting is where the publisher says look we don't want a 45 minute video we just want a 10 minute video so we want you to hit the key points of the game now you won't then be able to go and play the game but you will then be able to read the rule book and you are already 75 percent of the way there because you've had you know a good well-structured overview so I, I do overview videos as well and i think anybody who is going to be entering your contest who wants to cover a heavy game that's what they're going to have to do and in some ways, creating an overview of a video, overview video is harder than a full rules video. Because a full rules video, you go, right, I'm going to cover everything. In an overview video, you're like, I've now got to decide what is important and what isn't. And it actually, I mean, it will take you less time overall to create the video. But you've got this extra step of deciding which bits you're going to include in there, which bits are important and which bits are not. And I have seen a number of other overview videos, and I don't want to be critical of, of other content creators, but there's been some things in those overview videos where I've gone, oh, you've gone into way too much detail about this very specific thing, and this is just an overview. So, yeah, it, it's not an easy thing to do. Cassie, any particular things you would definitely want to get into a short video? I think um, there are a few things that are important. I know Paul touched on a bunch of, um, it's definitely an overview more than it is a tutorial or a full how to play. But I would say that there are a few things that are important. You want to make sure you're explaining how do you win the game? Yep. What's the goal? You want to explain, and then you like to, it's good to move backwards. How do I win the game? By having the most points. How do I get points? By doing X, Y, and Z. How do I do X, Y, and Z? Well, you have points you spend to do X, Y, and Z. So you kind of work backwards. 
And that's when I read a rule book as well, I feel it's very important to have, what's the goal? What's the objective at the very beginning? Because when you're reading about all of these things you're doing, you're wondering, why am I doing this? I still don't know why I'm doing these things. Oh, this is why, because I need to earn points. That's how I win. It's got nothing to do with this cooperative aspect of this game that I'm reading about. So I think it's good to bring the focus to how do you win and then work backwards. And there are a lot of things that aren't necessary, like uh, let's say a game has cards that have special abilities. You don't have to go into specifics about each of the special abilities, but you can say you will get a card that gives you special abilities to do X, Y, and Z things. And that's all you got to say. (laughs) You don't have to go into more detail about when you have this one special ability, it's going to allow you to do this. And this means you're going to do this and this and this. There, you know, you can... You can just run off with it, and keeping it small and compact is important. It's very rare that I 100% agree with something that somebody says, but I do. <laughs> Everything you've just Thank said, you. absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I do the same when I'm writing rule books. Is you've got to get the, what are you trying to do? What what is this game about? The player with the most money at the end of the game wins, right? You've got to set that at the very start because as you say everything you read in a rule book or everything you watch in a video if you're watching it and you're like okay so I get three actions and I can spend one action to move this to here if you don't know what the objective of the game is before you've watched that you've no idea so you've got to get that into context and and working backwards is something that I do certainly when I'm teaching games in, in person and what you touched on there about the examples of the cards with special abilities absolutely 100% agree unless there is one really cool card that does a really cool thing that you maybe want to highlight. So you can say, look, there's lots of different cards with lots of different special abilities. For example, this one allows you to take a card from somebody else's deck and then you move on. So you mm-hmm. can't, you can't, I mean, I'm definitely in agreement that you shouldn't cover every single card on what each one does, but you might just want to mention a couple of them if they're really easy to explain, just to give people an idea. They're a selling point for the game. A selling point for the game mm-hmm. or something that you think is is cool and will make people go, ooh, I can take a card from another player's deck. Ooh, right, and then you move on. I know one one piece of feedback we've gotten in a lot of stuff in round one, which in round one they had a two-minute video, so very, very restricted. They were super limited. But a lot of the judges keep saying, I wish I knew what I did on my turn. Right. And that, I mean, in a two-minute video, that's tough. But in the how to yeah. play, <laughs> I think you should definitely include what you do on your turn because that's going to be the bulk of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the next thing I would do after after the, the the objective of what the game's about and how you win is by covering a very, very high-level structure. So this game consists of, you know, three eras. Each era is going to be divided into five rounds of play, and within each round, all each, each player is going to take one turn. Bang, there you go, straight away. Within, you know, 15 seconds or whatever, I now know I'm going to be taking turns within a round. There's five rounds, they make up an era, and after three eras, the game ends. Again, very, very high-level overview. You've got that right from the start. And then, yeah, just go into the details of what, what you can do on your turn. And then it really depends on how complex the game is. If you've got a choice of 12 different actions on your turn, don't explain them all. But if we take a diff- another game where you've only got a choice of two different actions, you might as well explain what those two different actions are. So, yeah, it really depends on the game. So I know both of you, like Paul was saying, you have, like, different sections of your video where you're on screen, it's just the game or it's graphics. Do you think it's important for you to be on the screen during an explanation or would people be fine getting away with just shots of the board or just graphics? 
I think just shots of the board would be fine. I really think that the reason that I have my, I do the same thing actually that Paul does where I'll have different sections highlighted for when it's going to be me on camera, when it's going to be components and whatnot. And when I have the parts that are highlighted for me, I mean, I really don't need to have the camera on me, but I feel like it would just be really boring and monotonous to have the camera consistently on the board. So it's not necessary. It's really just to make the video a little more entertaining. If you, you know, if you have the time and you have the ability to, it's always nice to make your video more entertaining, but it's not necessary, I would say. Yeah. I think it's also, that's slightly different for both of you because you're, you're doing this as a business and you're building up your brand. So I mm -hmm. think showing your face is part of making that connection. It's me teaching you how to play this video. It's not just the game. It's, yeah. it's, it's true, but there are some very successful uh, channels with, with many more views on their videos than I have, which the, you, nobody knows what they look like. <laughs> so it, 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 again, it depends on the brand, but their brand is that it's all digital animations and you don't actually see them on screen. So it's slightly different. I'm, I'm with Cassie here. I think it breaks it up. You know, the times when the bits of that um, script, when I'm writing it, where I say, oh, this is going to be me on camera. There's a reason why it's going to be me on camera. And it's because, not just to break things up, but because that part of the video, there's no point looking at any footage on screen. Because things always need to be moving. So if you've got to say something that lasts about, you know, 10 seconds, and on the board, it would just be a stationary picture of the board with you talking over it for 10 seconds, people are going to switch off. You know, it, there's been these scientific studies on how long you should have a still image on screen before people get bored and go to a different tab. So... Things have always got to be moving, and at least if that 10 seconds is me on camera talking, at least there's something moving on camera. I would agree. So anyone listening that's doing this for the contest, you're not required to be in the video, but like Paul said, it can help. So try to make it interesting. You're going to get the judges to pay attention more. People do get distracted even if they're judging. Yeah, so, right, setup and all that. So yeah. I, I wrote an article... Um, I think it was last year, actually, for the contest, about just basics of how to make a video, especially focusing on someone that has um, not a lot of, oh, really losing the words, not a lot of equipment. Um, so that's focusing more on a person who is using just a cell phone in a room with no professional lights. Um, as far as I know, both of you have a decent amount of equipment for your setups, right? Yep. Yeah. So what would you say is the basic important things that someone should do for their video assuming that they do not have a budget or equipment so interestingly enough the camera is not the most important thing there are many people out there who have done videos really good quality videos with just a cell phone because the ca the cameras on cell phones these days are fantastic lighting and audio is by far more important um, if you don't have expensive lighting try and find an area with good lighting uh, try and do it during the day if you can but you know when I'm when I'm sometimes spending two days filming a video I can't do it using natural lighting because the natural lighting changes in the UK every 10 minutes <laughs> um, so you know but if you're doing a short video that's only going to take you half an hour to film find a good day with no clouds half close the curtains to you know block out most of the bright light and then you'll be okay but yeah you need you need to have a lot of lighting because low, low lighting on, on cameras, it really doesn't, they, they really don't cope well. And audio, you can get a cheap lapel mic, you know, a few, uh, you can get cheap lapel mics for like $15 or something like that. 
plug it into your, your other smartphone or your iPad or whatever, which is below the table, get a free sound recording app, job done. It's much better than using the actual, you know, the audio on a camera from 10 feet away where it just sounds muffled and echoey. So you can get fairly cheap, um, you know, lapel mics, which will improve your audio quality massively. Cassie? Yeah, I was. Uh, I would agree definitely that the lighting, like Paul said, the cameras nowadays on phones are just great. And all you need is to have it angled in a way, you know, stack a couple of books on top of each other and put a couple of glasses on there and you can angle your phone. So you don't really need to get yourself a tripod. Um, and with the lighting, I was going to say the same thing. Natural lighting is great if you can get a good spot where there's just some nice light coming in through the house. Even if you wanted to go outside, if it's a nice cloudy day, it's going to give you everything you need. And there are lapel mics. It's funny that Paul brought that up because I was going to say the same thing. There, You can get ones that plug right into your phone, into the headphone jack, and you can just record your audio like that and not have to worry where your phone is while you have your hands in the way showing your game. You don't have to worry about where your mouth is in relationship to the phone either or in addition to i think they're like 20 bucks the one i've had to get some uh lapel mics uh to use with cell phones and yeah i think it was like maybe 20 bucks and there's one thing i do want to mention it's a little technical but i don't know if it's it might be helpful some headphone or some um microphones that are available to plug into headphone jacks don't get powered by the headphone jack and yep. they won't work. So you need to have one, either make sure your phone has a power, like it's going to power the mic or get a mic that has a little battery in it, which is the ones that I have. It was, like I said, it was like 20 bucks and it has, you know, those tiny little batteries that you would get for watches and whatnot in it. And it works fine. Yeah, the one of the things I mentioned in the article is that good equipment is great. But the main thing that it does is let you deal with problems. Using low-end equipment and more planning, you can get just as good results. Yes. It just it takes that extra planning to find the good spot of lighting because you don't have a camera that can deal with low light. Yep. Although even professional cameras aren't great in low light. No, they my, need my low light <laughs> setting is still not, not great. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you, you got to have light. So yep. turn on the lights in your house by next to but not right in front of an open window. That's the other thing. Don't do not do backlighting. Mm-hmm. Some people don't have access to editing software, although there is now free editing software for well, basically just online, so it's pretty cross-platform. So I would recommend, especially for the how-to-play video, editing is going to help you out. Let's start with Cassie. What do you use for editing your videos, and what's, a, like, what's your plan when you go into editing? Do you just throw everything there and piece it together bit by bit? Do you go by your script? How do you structure things? I do go by my script, and I would suggest if someone that's listening to this doesn't have a lot of ability to do a lot of editing, to definitely write yourself up a script that you'll feel comfortable. Read it a bunch of times. Um, so there, if there's work, because I stumble a lot on words, and I have a little bit of a lisp. So sometimes when I'm recording, I'm, I have to say the same thing over and over again, like tetromino. That one took me forever to not say tetromino. Uh, so I, I kept saying it the wrong way. And so, you know, sometimes it's just going to happen. So use words that you're comfortable with. Read through your script a lot. Um, but going to my equipment, I use pretty, I use like the higher end stuff. I use Adobe Premiere Pro, uh, Adobe Audition. I use all of the Adobe products. But I, before I was using all of these products and I could 
you know, I had reason. I had, you know, now that I have a job, I have reason to pay for things. Um, I had my free iMovie software. So if you're a MacBook user, you already have free editing software in your computer. And it's great software to start with. I just wanted to have more capability. But all of my beginning stuff was all in this iMovie free software that comes with MacBooks. Yeah, I've heard other people using iMovie as well. And, you know, I now use the whole Premiere suite. I've got the whole Creative Cloud. So Premiere is what I use for doing the editing. But, you know, I've seen some other people's videos and, yeah, they've just been done in iMovie. And I think there's one for Windows that's free. I don't think it's as good as iMovie, but there are some free tools out there that you can use. I mean, I remember doing a video before Gaming Rules was even formed. I did a video on Mage Knight. And I used um, Windows Movie Maker. And looking back, it was awful. But, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I used it <laughs> and it worked. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, so Adobe has Spark Video, which is is free. So you don't even need the Creative Cloud for it. And it's mm. it's very simple. I think it's much closer to the iPhone version of iMovie. Okay. But you can, you can put clips in order. You can add titles. And you can put music and sound over it. And I know a couple of people actually used that for the first round. Yeah. So oh, perfect. It's I mean, totally free. Need. It's it's online, so I don't even think you actually have to download anything. So it's cross-platform. No, and it's... it will do the basic, like, cut out your mistakes and put things in order, which is a massive help, especially with a time limit. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, well, you know, going back to the script, when, I'm, when I've done all of the filming and I've got my audio and it's all there, you know, which can be two to three days of work sometimes, I will sit down and I will have the script on my right-hand monitor and then I'll have Premiere on my left-hand monitor and then I'll start putting in the clips. Because generally speaking, the, the footage that I have is in the same order as I filmed it. But not always. You know, I'll go back and I'll be editing a bit and I'll be like, oh, that's completely out of focus. So what I'll do is I'll mark that bit in the script in red. As I'm going through the editing, anything that needs redoing, either audio or, or visual, I'll mark it in the script in red. And then at a certain point, like when I've gone through it all, I'll then go back and I will reshoot, stroke, re-record all of the bits that are in red so that I can then drop them in and, and fix all of the problems that's a good point don't make your video at the last minute so that you have time to reshoot mistakes yes yeah now bear in mind me and cassie are doing this professionally we get paid for for creating our content so we've got an extra level of um dedication dedication <laughs> stress we yeah we it's got to be right i can't have a mm-hmm. scene which is out of focus when a when a client has paid me to create a video it's, it's just I can't do that. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. Now, for people entering this contest, I'm sure if one particular scene is slightly out of focus, I don't think that's going to be that much of a problem. It's more about the content. Definitely. Can we see it? Can we hear you talk about it? Yeah. That's what's important. Awesome. Well, that brings us just about to the end of our time. So, Paul, would you like to share where people can get in touch with you or follow you online and watch all your How to Play videos to get a good idea of how to structure a video? Yeah, so the the YouTube channel is uh, youtube.com slash gamingrulesvideos. I am active on Twitter at gamingrulesvids because Gaming Rules Videos was too long for Twitter. Um, <laughs> they're, the, they're the main places. I've got a Facebook page as well, which is Gaming Rules. But yeah, all of my... All of my videos are on are on there, and as I say, this year I've started branching out because I've got a whole new studio set up with three cameras now. So I'm I'm now doing uh, as well as the old videos, which I am still doing, even though I've not done any of recently. Um, I'm doing tutorial and playthrough videos. So basically, I'll get some friends around, I will sit down, I'll teach them how to play the game, and then we'll play through the game, and it's all filmed with multiple cameras at the same time. So a completely different 
uh, style to the to the um, to the how to play videos, which are filmed in you know very small sections. I'm going to film this bit for five seconds, and now I'm going to spend two minutes on rearranging the camera, and now I'm going to film this bit for five seconds. The tutorial and playthroughs are basically filmed all in one go, and then they're edited together later on. So yeah, they take a lot less time. But everything's on my YouTube channel. And Kathy, where can people find you and find your videos, which are sh short videos for short games, which I think I'll have a lot of in the contest. Yes, I do uh, a big focus actually for indie games, and I have all of my information, my videos, my prices. Um, I do overviews and how to plays and I do reviews for free. All of that information is on my website, CassieL.com. And I am also on Twitter, um, CassieL, or my, what is it? It's at Friedman Cassie, because at CassieL was taken. Oh. Rude. <laughs> People stealing your name. I know. Yeah, as a Chris Anderson, I didn't even have an option to try that one. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, thank you both for coming on. I hope all the listeners found this useful for the contest and any other how to play videos you're making and hope to talk to you soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. You can check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor level supporters. Chris Turner, Vegan Al, Brad Bachelor, Roscoe Schock, Boss Cottis, and Corey Muddeman. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop and on Facebook at the Board Game Workshop. Join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can call the show's Google Voice number at 725-222-8249 and leave a question or a contributor segment for a future episode. You can get the links for these and all show notes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>